Welcome to Education Suspended, a podcast focused on exploring, engaging, and dialoguing with those in education who are passionate about changing the status quo and evolving the archaic system we have inherited. Hey everyone, welcome back to Education Suspended. Well, we made it through February. I don't know many of us in education who say February is our favorite month. Well, it tends to be short. It feels incredibly long. So welcome to March. I suppose I'll just say that. We've got a great interview today with Monica McHale-Small, who is the Director of Education for the Learning Disabilities Association of America. While we definitely jump into the world of learning disabilities, we spend the first part of the episode talking about her role as a superintendent. Steve and I found that both really intriguing and wanted to take some time just to explore what that experience was like for her. It's just important for me to keep that in mind. Um, I guess I tend to be pretty, I don't even know what word to use. I guess I'll say I have high expectations of our leaders. And so it was it was good for me to talk to a superintendent and, and hear their story. But like I said, we also definitely jump into the world of learning disabilities. Monica highlights the importance of speaking the same language across the board and ensuring that we support the whole child, not just aspects of the child. She's really, really sensitive to how difficult it is to navigate the special education world, not just as a school psychologist, but also as a parent who had to navigate this herself with her kids. She also spends time talking about this concept of responsible inclusion. So many people are talking about inclusion, 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 which is great, but we're not minimizing that by any means. But really, what does that boil down to and what should we be looking for? Our time went incredibly fast with Monica. We were grateful for her agreeing to hop on the podcast with us. So sit back and enjoy Education Suspended with Monica McHale-Small. Hi. Hi, Monica. How are you? I'm good. How are you? A little flustered, but I'm okay. <laughs> Listen, we love flustered. <laughs> I'm just going to close my door. I got my little dog back. So um, oh. I don't think I, she's going to bark or anything. I have my little dog here too, and I'm hoping she won't bark. But Listen, <laughs> your, dog is a lo- your dog's allowed, but not mine. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever, Greener. Whatever. Well, I'm, I'm uh, so honored that you, you um, are joining us. I'm glad our worlds collided. Uh, this is a very small world, and I'm going to try to give the timeline of this. So my intern supervisor last year is Brittany. Brittany's, oh, okay. Yeah, Brittany's <laughs> best friend is Jessica, a different Jessica. I mm-hmm. met Jessica when I was a keynote speaker at a conference this year. And alas, Monica, here you are. <laughs> okay. So All that's, right, it makes that, sense now. Yeah, that's the connection. <laughs> Um, so welcome to Education Suspended. We're so happy to have you. Um, you have so much to teach us, so we're excited to pick your brain. But we start all of our podcasts to say, Monica, we're going to have you introduce yourself to our listeners, have you talk about what you do, how you got there, and then if you wouldn't mind, reflect on your own educational journey and if there's any connections to what you do now, and we'll go from there. So the the floor is all yours. Okay. So I'm, I'm Monica, and currently I am doing two things primarily. I am the Director of Education for the Learning Disabilities Association of America, and I've been doing that for a little less than a year. Um, and I also am, am an adjunct associate professor 
in the school psychology department at Temple University. So I'm doing two things that I have a lot of passion about. And I got to this place because of my background where, you know, what I've done previously. And I've done a lot of things previously. So maybe I just kind of started at the beginning. I was a school psychologist at the beginning of my public school career. I did a few things before that, but I worked in a school district right outside of Philadelphia and really loved being a school psychologist. It was something that a lot of people tried to talk me out of, um, which is sad. (laughs) And at one point in time, I even transferred out of my program at the University of Pennsylvania and went into like a pure research program. And that was really because I had a crisis of conscience about the whole role of the school psychologist and public education in recreating the status quo. And I thought, oh, gosh, I cannot do this. I don't want to be a part of that. But realized, you know what? I still wanted to be a school psychologist. It just wouldn't go away. So I went to two schools at the same time. I went to Millersville University, got my certification in school psychology while I finished my doctorate at University of Pennsylvania in educational psychology. Got a job in public schools and found that I was in the right place. I love education. I love public schools. I loved being in the place where I was working. It was an awesome place. And I had the opportunity to do a lot of different things. Love this job. But after a while, it became pretty overwhelming because um, that my last year as a school psychologist in that particular district, I did 120 evaluations. And I found that I wasn't really getting to do all the other things that I was trained to do and really loved doing. So I found another job and um, I got to be the psychologist, counselor and instructional support teacher for, for one elementary school. And it was probably in that position because I got to do so much intervention work with students that I became really, really passionate about literacy and learning everything I could about reading and writing instruction. By this time, I had four children of my own. Surprisingly, my kids were struggling in school. And even though I was doing a lot of work with kids with uh, learning disabilities, I never kind of thought that the work would be something I would bring home. Got a job closer because my kids were getting older and some of them were in activities. And and it was in that school district that the superintendent um, asked me to consider going into administration, which my initial response is, you're nuts. I had no desire to do that. Um, but he was persistent and it was an opportunity to go to school for free. And I did. And I became a supervisor of psychological services and then moved on to being a supervisor of uh, pupil services and then a student services program director. And and I was all in that same district. I'm like, well, if I'm going to do it, I might as well go all the way. And I talked to the superintendent who encouraged me to go into administration. And I said, so do you think that I could become a superintendent? And he said, oh, absolutely not, which I took as a challenge. (laughs) And and to be fair, he told me why he said that. He told me, he goes, oh, you're, it's too political a job. You, you would hate it. But I took that as a challenge. So I decided, okay, I can do this. But I, would, I knew I had to get out of like the special ed psychology side of education into the regular ed. So I, I worked on that, got a job as a superintendent. 
and found out that that superintendent was really right, that <laughs> it was not the job for me, that it was way too political and too far removed from the things that I was passionate about. So I did that job for three years, and then I became more involved in Learning Disabilities Association, and that's how I got to where I am. You talked a little bit about like how my own experience as a learner kind of drove my passion around education. Um, I did I did okay in school. Like I, when I look back now, I know I I know I have ADHD as my whole family does, and probably you know now that I know more about dyslexia, probably really mild dyslexia, but school was okay for me. But I, I had a brother who now I, and he has since passed away, but I'm very sure now that my brother had dyslexia and he really struggled. You know, I was always kind of his, the big sister watching over him and trying really hard to help him in school. So I think that drove my interest in, in the field of school psychology. And then, like I said, surprise, I have my own children and then they have struggles when you're in the role of mom. All that professional learning seems to go out the window, I find. And you're just a mom who's struggling to do, you know, what's best for their kids. But certainly now that they're all grown and I know how much support they needed and got, I think that has made me really passionate about working with LDA and trying to make sure that other kids have that opportunity to be all they can be and really have a successful school experience. I just want to back up for one clarification. Yep. Clarify away, my friend. From from way back, because you talked to Monica, you talked about our crisis of conscience and conscience Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that that the status quo just wasn't going to work. I think that raises the hairs in the back. I mean, Jessica and I get (laughs) our our ears get tickled when you say something like that. So Mm -hmm. can you just unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I can definitely unpack that. It's and it was it was big for me. So I took a course in graduate school called School and Society of, in America, and it was actually taught by a professor who was a visiting professor from Australia, and he was just kind of showing how public education was kind of created to maintain the status quo to keep the people who were at the bottom at the bottom and the people who were at the top at the top, and it was very disturbing to me because my my intent to going into public school was that you know I I was really passionate about this whole idea that wow here we have this system in our country that everybody gets to go to school and get this great free public education you know I really thought about this whole conundrum for a long time and I decided that you that the best place to be if you want to make change is inside the organization or inside the system and made a very conscious decision that I wanted to push back on systems of oppression. And I started doing that almost from the beginning. I had a habit of, you know, speaking my truth to power and that didn't always go over great, but I somehow always landed on my feet. And when I look back, you know, I think I very consistently pushed back my whole my whole career. So awesome. I I, I want to take a, another short stop with your superintendent <laughs> career, and then we're okay. gonna we're gonna we're gonna keep going. 
I think to date, Grainer, tell me if I'm wrong. You're the first guest that's actually been a superintendent on our podcast. You you also said mm-hmm. something that sparked it for me, right? Of like it was so political. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering for you in this, you know, after hindsight 2020, what what is this about? What needs to shift for this role of a superintendent to be able to meet the needs of the adults in the district, the kids in the district, without it being so political? Maybe that's a very loaded question. I just think, and 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 I partly ask because Steve also knows this about me. I'm I tend to be pretty harsh on leaders. You know, for me, the buck stops with them. But I right. also I also am reminded of they can their hands are tied often. So I don't know. Are there things that you reflect on or things that you think really would need to shift to help push education forward from a even a superintendent mm-hmm. perspective? That's a really good question that I don't know if I have a really good answer for. Um, I do think that there's just so many stakeholders that public school superintendents have to please. And keeping your job is keeping all those folks happy. But what you said, though, about, um, you know, really holding leadership accountable and the buck stops there. I get that. And I was that type of person as well. But having been in the position and knowing that, you know, you're working at the at the pleasure of the board. And there are times when you want to say something and you know that you can't do that. Not because I was afraid, but I also knew that it was baby steps, right? My own children will get very, uh, you know, impatient with people in leadership roles and think they're not doing enough. And uh, it definitely gave me a new perspective on what it takes to be a leader and to make change. And sometimes it just happens much more slowly than any of us would like to see. Well, I appreciate you sharing your perspective. I really do too. And one reason in particular, um, I think a lot of our listeners feel like you do. If if you want to change public education for the better, it's much easier and much more effective to do it from the inside out. But -hmm. then you just told us it takes time and it's baby steps and, and your patience and just willingness to step back and hang in there. It was well, that's just marvelous. Yeah, well, thank absolutely. <laughs> okay, well, let's pivot, if if you're all right with that, Monica, uh, into the learning disabilities world. I, I'd love to start. I, I recognize that, well, we have a large majority of our listeners who live in the world of education in some form or fashion. We also have listeners that don't. W- what do you mean when you say learning disabilities? Let's just start with that. Okay, that's a really good question because many people don't know what I mean by that. And we assume that people know what we mean. LDA, Learning Disabilities Association, we often get calls from um, parents and educators because they're trying to help somebody or they have a child who's struggling or a student who's struggling. And I would say probably maybe a third of those calls, the, the caller is not really calling about somebody with a learning disability. They're calling about somebody who may be on the autism spectrum, or perhaps they have an intellectual disability, but it's not a learning disability. So I think if we were just to flag down people on the road and say, hey, what's a learning disability? A lot of people believe that any type of disability that impairs learning in any way would be a learning disability, right? So it would be intellectual disabilities and autism and um, other things. But a learning disability, as it's defined in um, 
IDEA, which is the law that, you know, mandates special education services for students with disabilities. And as it's defined in the DSM and also in the ICD, now the ICD-11, which is the international classification, um, these disabilities are disabilities that are presumed to be of neurological origins that involve processing deficits. So people with learning disabilities very often either have slow processing speed or working memory deficits or auditory processing deficits. But overall, they have average or oftentimes even better than average cognitive abilities. But these processing difficulties make it difficult to learn in either one or more areas. So things like basic reading, which would be reading, decoding, or reading comprehension, or spelling and writing and mathematics. So they struggle in particular areas. Another myth about learning disabilities is you only have a learning disability if you only have one area where you're struggling. But now we know that many students with dyslexia also have dyscalculia those individuals would be struggling to learn how to decode and read words, but then also really struggle with mathematics calculations and basic math as well. Monica, I watched a, a bit of one of your videos of, oh. of you teaching, and, and I was really, um, I think Jessica and I both work in the area of neurodevelopment, and we understand there's a language that goes with it. Mm-hmm. You were unpacking some language in that talk that, you know, don't, mix learning disabilities with maybe learning differences, or there there were a number of other things. Is there any other language that that we should know? Because language turns out to be so important as we think about all of this. Yeah, that's, that's a good one. So in the DSM and in the ICD-11, the International Classification uh, System, they call these things disorders. But in IDEA, they're called disabilities. But now disability has almost become a dirty word. So a lot of folks want to talk about learning differences. And at LDA, um, we're pretty firm on the idea that when we're talking about learning disabilities, we're talking about disabilities. Yeah, difference is a nicer word, but let's be realistic. We're all different. Everybody's different in some way, right? And When you have a disability, that difference becomes an impairment. So your learning is impaired to the point where it's causing you difficulty, either in the school setting or the work setting. You know, you just can't hang without more support, more direct instruction, more intervention. We go back and forth. There's a lot of parents who prefer the word difference, but you don't have any legal rights with a difference. You have some legal rights in our society with a disability, which is another reason why we use the term disability. And honestly, just not using the word disability is really a pretty ableist stance. You know, when those of us who or people who feel like disability means less than or that it's a dirty word in some way or it's not nice, that's really a very ableist kind of stance to take or ableist types of of thinking that, you know, you're not less than if you have a disability. You just need a little bit more support. We used to call intellectual disabilities mental retardation. And prior to that, idiot, imbecile, moron, they were the actual terms that were used by the medical establishment. And those terms were rejected because they did become slurs. They did become a way to insult people. 
And I really think that goes back to, it's not the word, it's the idea that in our society, we think of people who, you know, don't have typical cognitive abilities as less than. So we keep changing the word, thinking we're going to fix it. But until we change our thinking and just realize that everybody is worthwhile just because they're human and they have things to bring to the table. And, you know, some of us don't read quite as well or speak quite as well or maybe even reason quite as well, but we're still worthwhile and worthy. Yeah, that was really well said. I think what's also coming up for me, which I think makes the learning disability world a little bit harder to navigate at times, is that, you know, you were talking about the DSM world. Mm-hmm. Right. Versus the special ed law world. One lives really right. in the medical clinical realm and one is really in education. And so it can also happen in which and I've experienced this numerous times in which let's just say a child does qualify in the medical world for autism, um, mm-hmm. for ADHD, um, something like that. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to qualify for some type of service at school that would require an IEP. So then that also, I think just because they're so siloed and they, these two systems don't do a good job of interacting, that that really just further impacts those that truly have, you know, learning disabilities in school. I don't know your thoughts on that. No, I, I, I know exactly what you're talking about. We have this group who's working on these standards and it's nice because in our group, we have a developmental pediatrician and we have a speech and language pathologist and I'm a school psychologist and we have some special educators. Um, and yeah, that's a big piece of what we're talking about, that we all have to be speaking the same language. And if we're really good to serve the child and address the needs of the whole child, then we do have to be in communication. Even that whole thinking, well, you know, this is a medical thing versus an educational thing. I mean, we're whole people. (laughs) So we really do need all the people working with a child to be in communication. And if not speaking the same language, because, you know, every profession has their lingo, at least understanding the language that we're speaking. Going back to the language, the other thing that has become, you know, really important right now for parents of students with dyslexia is that we use that term dyslexia and not call it a learning disability. Now, we feel pretty strongly at LDA, and I'm very happy to say that the International Dyslexia Association also feels very strongly that dyslexia is a learning disability. We have a name for it. We understand what it is. You know, when a child qualifies under that that classification of uh, learning disabled, if dyslexia applies, dyslexia is a word reading disability, that affects decoding and encoding. If that applies, then we should be using it. We should be using terms like dyslexia, dyscalculia, dysgraphia when they apply as a type of learning disability. But then going back to what you were saying, Jessica, about people qualifying sometimes in the medical sphere or the DSM, but then not qualifying under IDEA for special education, you know, we we do have to make that distinction that you know kids who need that specially designed instruction or typically going to get an uh, an IEP. But sometimes, you know, you're, you really don't need that specially designed instruction, either because your impairment is very mild or because you already received intervention and, and now you don't need that support, but you still need accommodations. And that's real common with kids with dyslexia who get a lot of intervention early on. Oftentimes you see that they they gain the accuracy with their reading. 
but the fluency isn't there. So they might not need the direct instruction anymore, but they still need the accommodation of getting extra time. Okay. And I'm just going to say something impulsively. And so you can just (laughs) say, stop talking, Pfeiffer. I, I still feel, especially when it comes to the learning disabilities realm, and maybe that's just because currently right now, I still support schools, but I'm also getting my hours for my clinical license in psychology. So I'm doing more clinical work in the assessment mm-hmm. world. And I'm just kind of re-sparked of, of feeling as though your score has got to be really, really low to get services. And it just breaks my heart when I'm assessing some of these kids and they're totally impacted, but I know they're not going to qualify because it's not showing up in the ways that you know, the data would want. So I I don't know, just, I don't know if that makes sense, but it's been weighing on me a lot. It it makes total sense. And it's a frustration. And, you know, I'm not going to pretend that one of the reasons I retire early isn't because I just got to be overwhelming because there aren't, there's so many problems that I can't solve, but yeah, that happens a lot. And the frustrating thing is, is that it varies so much from state to state, and district to district, and then even sometimes within districts from school to school, like who qualifies and who doesn't changes. And yeah, in some places, you have to be the lowest of the low before you get any help. And then in other places, somehow kids can get services that they weren't able to get, or somebody else who's very similar isn't able to get. So that's a frustration. Actually, there was a GAO report not too long ago on part of this issue of, you know, eligibility criteria differing from state to state and school to school and district to district. And there aren't real good solutions other than, and that's one of the reasons why at LDA we're writing these assessment standards, because, you know, we have pretty strong feelings about what a truly comprehensive evaluation looks like. And um, maybe it's not going to get into regulation, but if we can maybe influence best practice in the field, then we can start to have some of those baby steps, right? I'm glad you're saying that because for me, the issue of accessibility, right? Of eligibility criteria varying that much. And I live in Iowa now, but I used to live in Colorado. And we would openly talk about it of like, you could be on a district line and your services mm-hmm. would differ depending on which block you lived on. And, yeah. and you, and you know, that would be one of the running jokes. Like, oh, if your kid gets diagnosed with A, B, or C, here's the district that you should move to. It really opens the floodwaters for inequity for these kids that don't have the capacity for the parents just to pick up and move and go somewhere that they can get services. It's a massive issue. It is. You know, my job <laughs> in this podcast is to steer us toward the practical and the personal, because this is a question I had written down. I think we could learn a lot from you as a parent of children who all had learning disabilities of some sort, what were some of the ways you served your children that we could learn from? Don't ask my children because they'll probably tell you I did everything wrong. But um, (laughs) well, okay. so here's something that I said to somebody else recently. The one thing that I did learn is I, I am so sensitive to how difficult this is for parents to navigate special education. We were just talking about, you know, eligibility changing from place to place. And there's so much to know. And, you know, I was a school psychologist. I was an administrator and I would have to go into my children's IEP or 504 meetings. And I was, my heart was racing. I was sweating bullets. And I'm the professional who knew how to navigate the system. And I was feeling that way. So 
my heart goes out to parents who who don't have the resources that I have. And that's why I'm so passionate about LDA and how hard it is. So that's a big piece of it, just being really sensitive to parents. And I truly believe, and I, you know, over my 27 years in public schools and many years working with parents in other capacities, most parents are doing the best they can with what they have at any moment in time. There's nothing that would frustrate me more than sometimes going into a a teacher's lounge and hearing people say, well, if you just had, you know, if you could just do a parentectomy. Um, No, being a parent is the most difficult job that I've ever had and doesn't come with a manual. And parents are just trying to do the best that they can. They need a lot of education and support in a way that's not condescending, in a way that recognizes and values the fact that they know their children probably better than anybody else. And we as school psychologists and educators, we need to listen better to parents because they really do know their kids. And maybe they don't know the, they don't, can't put it in the exact lingo that we use in school. But if we listen um, and we ask the right questions and we build trust, they can give us really valuable information that that we can use to help their children. I guess the other thing that I, um, you know, I've just become really passionate about learning disabilities and the need for really making sure that kids with learning disabilities are getting instruction and not just accommodation. We know how to teach reading and writing. We know how to do that. There's a whole science behind it that has built up for decades and decades. And I just see too often that, you know, I hear things like, oh, well, he's in third grade. We don't do phonics in third grade. Or, um, you know, we just start handing kids calculators rather than teaching them how to add and subtract and multiply And I just see way too much accommodating to the point sometimes I was talking to my daughter today about how she didn't want to go to the resource room when she was in high school. No kid wants to go to the resource room when they're in high school. Her reason for it wasn't just because she felt embarrassed. She goes, because they gave me the answers. She goes, I didn't want the answers. I wanted somebody to teach me. And uh, it helped me to understand. I didn't want to go and take a test there and just have them give me the answers. And, you know, I'm not saying that, that that's happening all over the place. But I think what she was trying to say is that it was just too much spoon feeding and accommodating. And, and I think it, that happens because we don't think these kids are capable. We kind of give up on teaching too early and they don't get to reach their potential. So as a mom, I spend a lot of time teaching and reteaching and getting tutoring and, you know, help trying to help my kids achieve everything that I knew they were capable of. And I know that that is really hard for a lot of parents. Not all parents have the resources or the know-how that I did. So I think we just need to be giving parents more support. And I think we need to really recognize the potential of kids and teach to that potential and not sell them short. Yeah, it's interesting. We ended season two um, a couple episodes ago with an interview with William Tucker, and he said something very similar, Monica. You know, essentially he was highlighting we're losing the grasp of understanding because we're so focused on just what are, what are the, the test scores and teaching mm-hmm. to the test. And so true comprehension and true understanding seems to be decreasing for a lot of our kids. I think the other piece that's coming up for me in regards to 
your beautiful articulation about the role of a parent and the difficulty of it is, I think, you know, with, with parents, we also can forget of how generational their experiences are. You know, it's not abnormal that, uh, you know, there, there can be a genetic component to some of this, right? So it, it may be, you know, if, if mom or dad had some form of dyslexia, it's, it's not abnormal if some of the children might have some of these difficulties, right? Which, which we're aware right. of. And who knows what the experience of was like for mom or dad or caregiver in education. And when they're sitting at these meetings, having these difficult conversations, I think we just need to remember that that's probably also coming up for them if that was their experience, or maybe we yes. should even ask them. Let's not forget mm-hmm. that they're human too. And just create that space of like, Hey, what was I wonder what what learning was like for you. Did you notice anything? And just see kind of where they go with that. I feel like we missed that quite a bit. Yeah. And that's that's really crucial. And that's one of the things that when and if we ever get our standards out, you'll see we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, really getting that background information from parents in in lots of different ways. And like you said, speaking to their experience. So that that's another factor, another layer, because like you said, a lot of the parents whose kids are struggling in school, they themselves struggled in school. So when they come to school, they're, in addition to being worried about their kids, they're, they're kind of reliving a little, you know, PTSD experience of having to go into the office, a place maybe that they didn't really have warm, fuzzy feelings about. Because a lot of kids who struggle academically start to act out because it's a lot easier or better to look tough and bad than to say, hey, I can't do this. This is too hard for me. Yeah, they just stop enjoying school. Yeah. I would like to go a little deeper on a phrase that I read that that you shared about harnessing mm-hmm. students' strengths. And I have a I have a grandson who has a, a learning disability and he's one of the most highly evolved humans I know. <laughs> I know his strengths. I get to see them as often as I'm with him. I just wonder how you handle that as a parent and how, what you might say to us about find the strengths. Yeah. Well, um, you know, sometimes you have to work really hard to find those strengths, not just, not because they're not there, but because when kids are not having success academically, they start to kind of hide their strengths. They start to stop believing that they even have them. So they're, you know, their light is kind of under a bushel at that point. It's it's about knowing the kids, right? So knowing your your children and seeing what they're interested in and trying lots of things. And it's not always easy to to find what your kid is interested in. And I think one of the things, one of the narratives out there that is almost making it a little harder for some kids is dyslexia is a superpower, which is nice. And I understand where people are coming from that they really want to say. It's not just a disability that, you know, you can have a lot of strengths. But I've heard kids say, I don't know what my superpower is because reading's hard and math is hard and everything is hard. The strengths could be maybe they have an artistic talent. Maybe they're good at sports. Maybe they're the the leader in the classroom. So it's really a matter of watching the kiddo and seeing, you know, where where their comfort level is, where they excel and putting them in a position to use that. There's a lot of kids who can't read well who are very articulate speakers. So if you have them be the kid that kind of gives the report, they're not reading it, but kind of reporting out on what their group may have worked on or, or something, then that's an area where they can shine. 
There's kids who struggle in with reading and math or whatever, but they're really very social and they're they're leaders. So they can be the person in the group or in the classroom who kind of organize the work. If the kid is really good at art, then give them as many opportunities as they can to, to do the illustrating or to come up with the creative way to present what it is that they know. It doesn't always have to be through reading and writing. There's lots of ways to convey knowledge. But, you know, there are strength surveys and we're trying to use them at, at Temple. And, um, you know, I've used them in other settings. And, you know, even if a kid isn't going to be like, you know, the the best athlete or the best artist, giving those strength surveys become kind of a basis to have a conversation about, oh, well, it looks like, you know, you seem to be somebody who's really sensitive to other people's feelings. Would you say that that's true? And and talking about something like that, that that's a real strength. We need people in this world who, you know, can understand and are watching out for other people and making sure that everybody's feeling included and okay. I actually find that a lot of kids who struggle academically and have learning disabilities do have that good emotional intelligence because they, they've gotten so good at observing people in the classroom, their classmates, because that's how they've kind of stayed under the radar is just by watching who's doing what and kind of trying to fit in. But they become really keen observers and they know when someone's having a bad day or somebody might need a little extra support. And that's that's a huge strength. We need way more people like that. Yeah, I'm glad you you say that because I've seen that pattern before of these kids that are maybe even just a little bit more socially mature, behaviorally mature, do really well kind of with the teachers and everything that they they do fly under the radar and we miss some of the maybe more academic deficits because yeah. we notice all these other things and they're just great to be around. They're not disrupting the environment. And so right. you, before <laughs> you know it, they're in ninth grade and they can't read the textbook in chemistry. Right. But yeah, it happens to a lot of kids. And I also enjoy it. Right? I went back to what your daughter said, but you're, you're trying to find other ways to ensure their level of understanding, right? Can we think outside right. of the box versus mm-hmm. just kind of the standardized prescription that we've been given? Yeah. And, and rather than getting more outside of the box, sometimes I worry that our, our, we're just building higher sides to our boxes. Like one thing that is, become a new pet peeve of mine and I'm trying to figure out a way to attack it is I was recently watching a video about reading and and you know it was talking about the fact that not everybody can read and that we really have come to undervalue the trades and and hands-on kinds of occupations which I agree with but here's the thing that is the the killer with that for me we talk about how, oh, you know, we need plumbers, we need tradesmen, we need electricians, and we do. And there are kids who struggle with reading and, and writing who can do really well. I've seen them with my own eyes. But guess what? We make them pass a written test in order to get licensed or certified so they can practice as a carpenter or an electrician or a plumber. And, you know, we really do have to push that whole notion of helping people find different ways to demonstrate what they know outside of even the school and the classroom and into the rest of the world. So that's something that I want to work on. (laughs) That's a really good point. So I want to be aware of our time. Okay. (laughs) See, I told you, I I told you that would happen. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I don't know if this is a good thing to wrap up on. If it's too much, we'll edit it out. But I love the two words together, responsible inclusion. That meant a lot to me as a classroom teacher for our educators 
you know, what does that entail? What does that mean to you? And what could that mean to us? Okay, to me, what that means is that it's inclusion where the the student really is a part of the classroom and they're benefiting from what's going on in the classroom. And it's not a situation where we just put the kid in there and it's sink or swim. And I, I see way too much in the name of inclusion, uh, putting kids who have learning disabilities in there to sink. I remember a conversation I had with a high school teacher once that this kiddo was in a high school algebra class and I was looking at the the child's uh you know report or data or something and they couldn't they couldn't do basic math and the IEP goals were about doing basic math and they were going to have these these probes weekly to see how they were growing in their adding subtracting multiplication and division and I'm like, okay, well, this is great. When are you teaching the, these skills? Oh, well, I can't teach those skills. He's in algebra. We don't have time to teach those skills. I'm like, but you're going every week and you're giving a probe to see how he's, you know, improving, but you're not teaching. Like, that's not responsible inclusion. That's great that we have him sitting in, in a high school algebra class. And if he can benefit from that, good. But you're saying he can't do these things. So we need to find time to teach him those skills. And if that means being in algebra and then getting something else, that to me would be responsible inclusion. It's making sure that it's not just that the kid's sitting there quietly and not causing a problem, but that they're really able to benefit from the instruction that's going on in that classroom. I really, really like that. Um, I hate to say, but our our time is wrapping up. And okay. I know you've got a <laughs> you've got a bunch of grad students waiting for you mm-hmm. to fill their fill their minds so we don't want to keep you too long but monica I'm, I'm we're so grateful that you joined us i'm i'm so glad that jessica introduced us it's been an honor having you on this podcast i'm also grateful for the work you're doing as a director of education so so thank you from the masses for for the advocacy work that you do for the inclusionary work that you do and just your overall passion to kind of push our system forward and evolve i'm i'm glad that you're in, in our corner Thank you for giving me the opportunity. And yes, it went fast and I can think of a million more things I could have said and should have said, but thanks for letting me have this space to say some things. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Thanks. Take care, Monica. Thanks.